Hi everyone. Today we speak with Dr. Chelston Brathwaite, a former Barbados ambassador to China. Prior to that, he serves as the Director General for the Inter-American Institute for the Cooperation on Agriculture, or ICA. Dr. Brathwaite recently published a book on his time in China as ambassador, titled "Memories of China: My 11th Defining Moment." In this episode, we discuss Dr. Brathwaite's views on small state diplomacy in China. Embassy management and how the Caribbean should accelerate its economic engagement with China in the next decade. Hi, Dr. Brathwaite, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Good morning, Rashid. It's indeed a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Brathwaite, you were the Director General for ICA for almost a decade. I'm curious if and how that role enhanced your appreciation for diplomacy, and then if that was transferred to your position when you became the ambassador for Barbados in China. Well, thanks for the question, and I am indeed pleased to have the opportunity to speak with you today about my experiences and to let you know how I understand it. How I interpreted it in the context of the posting in Beijing. When I worked for ICA, I started out as a professional of the institute, and in 2001, I became the director general.、Um, arriving at that post required the endorsement of the member states of the Americas. 34 member states are official members of the institute, and they vote. In an open competition for the post, in that open competition, I got twenty-three of the thirty-four votes, and my competitor, who was from Brazil, got eleven votes. Consequently, I became director general with a majority of the support of the member states.、Um, I got the majority support from the Caribbean, and several Latin American countries supported my candidacy. Um, as a result of that decision, as Director General, I had the opportunity to work with the ministers of agriculture of the Americas、um, directly, and with the ministers of foreign affairs of the Americas indirectly, because as an international organization, ECO functions within the context. Of the inter-American system, and the inter-American system is basically managed by the ministers of foreign affairs. So the interaction with the ministers of foreign affairs gave me an opportunity to interact with ambassadors from around the hemisphere. As a matter of fact, every year I went to Washington to the meetings of the Organization of American States and presented an annual report. On ECO's work, what we were doing in all the member states of the Americas, and、um, it was an opportunity to explain the work of the institute and to obtain feedback from the ambassadors as to what they saw as the critical issues that we should be addressing, addressing, and allowed us to prepare plans and proposals for the following year. It was a very interactive process, very transparent, and really represented an experience and accountability and、um, and transparency. And、um, it, I enjoyed it, and it contributed greatly to our success as an institution. You recounted in your book that I believe after ICA you were thinking about retirement, 
And then in that time period, just after Ica, the Barbados Prime Minister called upon you to take up the position in China. So I guess I'm curious what went through your mind to agree to take up this new, very different job. Well, let me admit to you that I was in retirement and therefore had in fact decided four years ago that uh, I had done my ultimate job. I had made my contribution to the world and I was now in a state of rest, relaxation, reflection, if I may. And to that extent, the call came as a surprise. And I had to do a lot of deep thinking to determine and to, well, to determine whether I should go back to another job. Because I figured after 10 years in the university, a year with the FAO in Rome, and 29 years with ICA, mainly in Latin America, Costa Rica, in Mexico, in Jamaica, in Trinidad and Tobago, it was time to take a rest. And I was in that, mo- in that mood of taking it easy, playing my guitar, attending to my garden, and writing my memoirs. So the call was a surprise. And when I got to the prime minister's office and heard it was China, I got excited. <laughs> Why did I get excited? Because I had lived in Latin America. I studied in the United States of America. I studied in Trinidad, I lived in Jamaica, I had visited Africa, Kenya, and Nigeria, um, visited London, England, Germany, etc. But I had never lived in Asia. And my understanding was that this was the new frontier. In fact, looking at the literature, I was conscious of the role of the, the Asian tigers, I was conscious of the role that Japan had played after the Second World War. And I was now conscious of the rise of China and the role that it was playing in global geopolitics. And I said, this is a wonderful opportunity to understand Asia, to visit Singapore, to see Hong Kong, to visit Malaysia, to go to Japan. I said, I'm going. So it didn't take me too long to make a decision that this was indeed an opportunity. And I believe that I took the, the, the initiative, I took the decision seriously, I went to Beijing, and I had a wonderful experience. So you did your PhD in the U.S. at Cornell in the 1960s. I'm very curious what that was like for you to be a Caribbean person in the U.S. at that time period. Well, studying the United States in the 1960s was a very interesting experience. This was clearly a period of great um, national upheaval in the United States. There was the the case of uh, the Black Power Movement at that time with um, the Reverend Martin Luther King seeking to obtain better conditions of service and better conditions of life for the black population. There was also concern about apartheid in South Africa at the time. Mm. And there was also concern about the Vietnam War. And consequently, in any day that you went out into the streets of Ithaca, where Cornell is located, you may see a protest and you were not quite sure what it was for. It could have been for the anti-war movement against the war in Vietnam. 
It could have been for the apartheid movement in South Africa, or it could have been the black power movement seeking better conditions and way of life for the black population of the country. And so these three, uh, I would say, initiatives, these three tendencies, these three circumstances created in the United States an atmosphere of uncertainty and turmoil. I remember as a student in the university, many times the, the black students at Cornell would be seeking my support for their initiative to make the case for better conditions for black students, for more black students in U.S. universities, etc. And I had to make the point that, you know, I am here to study. I am here to obtain a degree. I am not here to change the system that you are involved in. We have different objectives. And there were times when I had to withdraw from the friendship of some of my colleagues who wanted me to involve in the protests and in the marches and then, and stick to my books because that was my goal. I eventually graduated in 1970 with a PhD in plant pathology from Cornell, and that was my goal. And what did you do directly after Cornell? I actually left Cornell in 1970 and went to work in Rome, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations based in Rome, Italy. And that was a fascinating experience. I relived a lot of what I I read in school when I studied Shakespeare and he spoke of Julius Caesar and all the history of Rome. I could hear uh, in the back of my head, I could hear Brutus and Cassius calling for the removal of Caesar and um, the, the great works of Julius uh, of Shakespeare as he portrayed the reality of Rome at that time. But at that time, Rome was not uh, run by the Romans, it was run by the Italians. And therefore, this was a different context, a different time, and a different um, age. And so what I learned in Rome was uh, a fascinating country, um, diverse, rapidly developing, having its political challenges, but nevertheless a fascinating place for experimentation, for entrepreneurship, and for understanding the the challenges of the European Union as it was developing then, and the incorporation of countries of the Europe into a, a, a union of the type that we got to know afterward as the European Union. That was the initiation of the European Union at that time in the early 1970s. And was it then after the FAO that you moved to ICA? Right, no, after FAO, I went back to the University of West Indies in Trinidad and Tobago. Mm. And I worked there for 10 years as a lecturer and senior lecturer teaching agricultural science to students who were doing the BSc and MSc degrees at the University of West Indies in Trinidad. And that was a nice experience because I got to learn a lot about agriculture in the Caribbean and got to make some very good professional friends that have stayed with me all my life, really. And then I joined ICA in 1981. I joined ICA and uh, I was there from 1981 until 2010, 29 years with the Institute. Okay, and moving forward to your new post in Beijing, 
in the book you described your credential ceremony and I thought it was quite interesting I was always curious how those worked so could you explain what your experience was during the credential ceremony in Beijing well clearly the the whole idea of being an ambassador and having to present credentials was a new experience for me and um, I was fascinated by how the process unfolded in the first case the credentials were sent from Bridgetown in a special package DHL or I don't know which carrier took it certified etc and came to me at the embassy in Beijing by special courier and I was fascinated by that and then we got notice that credentials would be presented I think it was on the 20th of March 2014 at the Hall of the People to the President of China well this was very interesting and remarkable and then we found out that um I would not be carried to the great hall of the people by the driver of the Barbados embassy in uh, Beijing but that I would be carried to that famous destination by an escorted car of the government of China so this car arrived punctually on the day in, in the day identified with outriders and security and um i was marshaled uh, from the embassy to the car sat in the back chauffeur driven without riders and sirens beijing is a very crowded city it would normally take probably about half an hour to get from where the embassy is to the great hall of the people on this particular day it took about 10 minutes all the traffic in the streets just parked on the side of the road when they heard the siren and we were driven as those we were the 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 presidential entourage arriving from a foreign state and um, i was whisked off to the hall of the people and when i got there i was surprised because i thought i was the only one presenting credentials on that particular day only to realize that there were 14 other ambassadors who were there to present credentials we were ushered into a room and uh, we exchanged greetings of course and then each one was taken to a separate room and in that room you were given your your directors as to how to approach the president you must stay in line you must not stay with the president for more than 2 minutes and when his assistant turns then you know it's time to leave because the president has limited time and could not spend a lot of time with us so we were marshaled from that room into a separate room where the president stood waiting for us and this was an impressive moment because to meet the president of china brings to you the awe of a, a leader of the most populous country in the world and here was president xi jinping standing quietly and alert to what was going on around him and receiving us as ambassadors and he expressed to me in the two minutes that i had with him he expressed to me his pleasure in having visited the caribbean the year before um when he first became president 
and um, that he wished for the people of the Caribbean and for me uh, great success in the future. And he looked forward to future visits to the Caribbean. He found it a very interesting part of the world. And uh, he, he expressed best wishes for me and my people. And that was very, very um, impressive. And um, after that short encounter, he walked away. Um, I walked away, sorry. And um, other ambassadors came. But the significant thing about this was that the president of China had visited the Caribbean the year before and visited and met with the heads of state and government in Port of Spain, in Trinidad, in 2013. To me, that was a significant geopolitical moment. It is not very often that a president of China leaves Beijing to come to the Caribbean and to meet with the heads of state and heads of government very soon after being inaugurated as president of China. I mean, when you consider the geopolitical significance there, there are many other places that a president could have visited, but he came to the Caribbean. And I still think that we in the Caribbean did not quite internalize the geopolitical importance of his visit and the significance of it in terms of building a better relationship with China. In fact, the president in that visit offered the Caribbean some $3 billion in loans and grants for development. And um, this was a significant moment and a significant opportunity. Oh, I definitely agree. I think that the Xi Jinping visit to the Caribbean in 2013 is too often underappreciated. It's also very unknown to many people uh, as well, even in the Caribbean. But he went from Trinidad to I think Costa Rica to Mexico. So he actually started in the Caribbean very, very soon after. And it was the very first time a Chinese president visited the Caribbean. And I always remember this um, news clip of him on the tarmac of the airport in Trinidad. Him, his wife, playing a steel pan. <laughs> it's just very, very, very strange. Okay, so I want to now talk about embassy management. Uh, a very fun topic. You mentioned that when you arrived at the embassy in Beijing, there was no mission statement, there was no job descriptions for the staff members, there were no uh, evaluation criteria for staff performance and so on. And you wanted to implement those things in the embassy. I'm curious, well, why were those things absent? And why do you think it's so important for having those things in the embassy? Well, in a real sense, I often believe, based on my experience in management and leadership over the years, that in any institution, um, clear definition of mission and purpose is critical in helping to define what it is we are doing and why we are here. And that is the basis for motivation and the basis for good leadership. And an element that links critically with that is the whole question of what role will you play in the organization? Each and every person should have a job description and an understanding of their role in the organization. In fact, in ICA, one of the things that I insisted on was that each unit, each department, had a mission statement within the global mission. And within that department, each person 
define what we call a personal implementation plan. Why are you here and what are you going to do? That allowed for evaluation. Because if you have a personal implementation plan, you have an idea of what your role is, then when we come to do evaluation, it is very easy to determine, have you implemented your personal implementation plan? That process helped a lot to promote transparency, accountability, and good governance, good management. Because you got a lot of feedback and a lot of uh, cooperation as a result of having these instruments in place. And so when I got to the embassy and I asked for the, um, the evaluation and I asked for the description of their jobs, etc., and these were not in place, I said, well, clearly there's work to be done here if we're going to have an efficient and smooth function in embassy, we need to have a description of what every person in that embassy should be doing. A clear understanding of their roles and responsibilities in order that we can move forward. And so I dedicated myself to doing that. Let me admit that the, the embassy in China was in fact a little different from many of the embassies around the world, Barbados embassies around the world. For example, if you were to visit the High Commission in London, the High Commission in London has been there for years. Or the embassy in Washington has been there for a number of years. The embassy in China was new. In fact, China was new to the diplomatic efforts of Barbados. And so one understood that initially not everything was in place. And I guess it took time to put all of this in place. So I saw part of my role as helping to build the embassy, helping to put these structures and instruments in place in order to make it uh, a growing initiative and one that could redound to the benefit of Barbados. And so one of the things that I undertook was to ensure that we had job descriptions, we put a evaluation system in place, we define a, we define a mission statement, and uh, that helped to generate a sense of purpose and a sense of vision and a sense of direction for the staff. So I, I thought it was important. Something else you mentioned in the book was that the Caribbean ambassadors in Beijing would meet monthly to discuss various topics of the Caribbean China relations, and I was always wondering if something like that did did happen on on the ground. So, what was the you know rationale and formation of those discussions, and what did you all discuss while you met each month? First of all, I think being far away from home, <laughs> there was a certain sense of the need for. Uh, community, the need to share, the need to understand where we are and what were the implications of us being in Beijing as Caribbean ambassadors. Was there a common thread? Did we have some common objectives, etc.? Um, that, that was, that, that was clearly part of our mission and to share knowledge and understanding experiences so that we could help each other. What was clear, however, is that there was no common um, mission, no common policy from the Caribbean with respect to China. And uh, th that was obvious because 
China has never been, in my view, an important strategic topic on the agenda of CARICOM. Mm. And one understands that given the fact that some countries are aligned with China on the one-China policy and others are aligned with Taiwan. And consequently, they seem to have never been a coming together of the minds to develop a common strategy towards the People's Republic of China. Nevertheless, our meeting in Beijing provided opportunities to discuss our challenges in the Caribbean and how we could better relate to China as a grouping. And I must admit that out of that, came several ideas as to how the Caribbean could work better with China. For example, we spoke of the need probably to have one common building for for Caribbean ambassadors in Beijing, which would reduce the costs of operation there and facilitate cooperation among us and between us in terms of regional projects whether those regional projects were in the area of telecommunication or in the area of transportation or investment or tourism, if we were in one building, that would create a sense of unity and generate more synergy and cooperation between us. That idea was floated with the with the, the governments in the Caribbean. I must admit, from what I understand, it did not progress very far. But it doesn't say that it is not still a good idea and it's not something that we should pursue going forward. We also felt there was need for uh, an investment council. And um, we got in touch with the, 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 the trade initiative, which is based here in Barbados, the Caribbean Trade Initiative. And we discussed this with them and said, you know, in terms of fostering trade with the Caribbean and China, it would be good to have a common focus and a common strategy because we are so small in terms of our ability to supply that market that if we could do it together as a group, then we are in a better position to obtain the necessary um, economies of scale in terms of the export of products. These are some of the initiatives we discuss. We also discuss education, the treatment of students, Caribbean students in China. There were some issues which we discussed and we shared knowledge on this. And we discussed what should be the future of the China-Caribbean cooperation. So it was a very fruitful forum and um, we gained a lot from each other, I would think. And besides this monthly meeting, were there many other cooperative events the Caribbean embassies organized? We did have we did have a few cooperative events and one that I remember we did that was a great success was the Meet in Beijing cultural meeting or festival in 2016 in which we got together as a Caribbean group and arranged to cooperate with the Ministry of Culture of China in promoting a, a, a cultural uh, extravaganza showcasing the Caribbean. And this was part of an initiative which started with the president of China promoting the idea of cultural cooperation with Latin America and the Caribbean. And so we as ambassadors spearheaded the Caribbean component. We, have a, we had a film festival 
We had a photographic exhibition. We had a night of Caribbean music and we brought in some artists and um, it was really a spectacular gathering. And um, the Chinese enjoyed it. One of our chefs stayed on and um, he pre prepared Caribbean food at the Hilton Hotel. And this was patronized by many Chinese who knew nothing about the Caribbean. And um, we were able to share a little bit of Caribbean culture with the Chinese in Beijing in that context. And we all joined together, pooled our resources, and had a very successful um, initiative there. I remember in uh, the Mighty Gabby participating in one of our events, and he brought the music of Barbados to the, um, to the event, which was very, very interesting and well-received. So on a, a broader diplomacy question, what do you think is the biggest challenge that small state embassies have in big markets like China? Well, first of all, I think that um, we have tended to to understand an embassy as an entity which is a common denominator in all countries. For example, give you an example. Our embassy in London and our embassy in the United States, headed by an ambassador, with a counselor, a second secretary, and appropriate support staff. The major responsibility, as I see it, is one, to participate in the global dialogue and to promote cooperation with the member state in which you are based, but also to look after the diaspora to ensure that Barbadians or West Indians in that particular capital or in that particular country, that their needs are looked after, that their challenges are resolved, and that you provide friendly cooperation with the citizens of that country and promote the image of the country in that particular capital. In the case of China, I saw a different reality. In the first case, we did not have a diaspora in China. In fact, um, I would say we only had about 25 um, students. Barbados only had about 25 students in China. And we were entering into a country with a tremendous uh, possibility for financial and technological cooperation. We were entering a country that had become a uh, uh, a leader in technology and innovation, a leader in financial development, a leader in the whole question of innovation, technological expertise, entrepreneurship, and trade, a leader in tourism, where 100 million tourists travel the world from China every year and have been spending over $100 billion internationally. These, in my view, represented new opportunities, new opportunities for us to begin to craft an embassy that was entrepreneurial, an embassy that had a focus that said, in this context, we must not concentrate on the diaspora, which we don't have, we can participate in the global discussion, which is important, but we must also look for a development model and a 
international cooperation agenda that takes advantage of the fact that we are in a country with such tremendous economic and technological capacity. And so I felt that we should have had in Beijing, for example, a commercial counselor, a specialist in finance, someone in the area of tourism, a person who could understand the trade agenda better. Because an ambassador generally, normally, we don't have all of these competencies. And therefore, I saw the need to link the embassy through the institutions at home that treat with these areas, these subject areas, with the embassy in Beijing. No reason why a specialist in trade from the Ministry of Trade could not be stationed in Beijing for six months or for a year to explore trade relationships between uh, China and Barbados or the person in tourism or in international finance. This to, me, this to me would be the new focus of an embassy that has an entrepreneurial focus seeking to explore opportunities for business for cooperation in the business area and also linking strategically with the private sector. For too long, the embassies have concentrated on the agenda of government without taking into consideration the agenda of the private sector. And we know that private sector initiatives are critical in our development. And so I saw the need to expand the concept of the embassy from a diplomatic entity to a more strategic economic entity, one that could do the kind of um, economic evaluation and use this as a basis for promoting development cooperation between the two countries. That new dimension, that new concept of an embassy, I saw as critically important, especially in the case of China. And also to take advantage of the countries in the Pacific region, not only China, but also linking with Japan, linking with Singapore, linking with Malaysia, linking with Vietnam. So you take advantage of what I would call a regional embassy based in Beijing with linkages to Asia, because we cannot afford to have embassies in every country. But given the reality and our limited financial resources, make the embassy in Beijing a regional embassy with outreach possibilities, including India, India is a fast-growing economic giant. And we need to link with India and develop initiatives there. As you know, we have recently got some vaccines from India, which is, a, in fact, a very interesting development. But there's much more that can be done. We must look at these large countries as sources of investment, sources of innovation, sources of technology, sources of finance, and develop also cultural relations with the countries so that the embassy would have a development focus and not just a diplomatic focus is what I have expressed in my book. Are there any embassies that are currently structured to do this development focus mission? One of the countries I think that has um, done a, a tremendous job in this area 
is uh, is Chile, the country, is Chile. Okay. Within the context of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, there's an additional arm to the embassies of China, uh, I mean of Chile, called Pro Chile. And Pro Chile is staffed by a, a group of economists, business people, information specialists, and people who understand the reality of the Chilean economy. So when they go out and become members of their embassy, they are looking for opportunities for investment in Chile, for trade, for cooperation, etc. The emphasis is different from the ambassador, purely ambassadorial function. And Pro-Chile has been very successful in that regard. In fact, the Chile was one of the countries, the first country in Latin America that signed a cooperation agreement with China. And today, they are a major uh, member of the cooperation with China in trade. And the, the significance of that relationship is translated into billions of dollars every year by the export of wines, the export of fruit, and the export of fish, including salmon, from Chile to um, China. Of course, one of the major exports also is copper. But the point I'm making is that fostering an economic relationship as opposed to a political relationship has redound to the benefit of Chile in promoting jobs and economic opportunity with China, and something that we could examine as we move forward. For my final question, when you look at the various Caribbean governments' foreign policy towards China right now, do you look at them and think, okay, they're on the correct track, they're going well, or are you not so optimistic? I would think that that that's an interesting question. Of course, each country is different. Um, China, in its overall global uh, policies, have made it clear that they are not only interested in working with big countries, but also small countries. And I think the visit of the president to the Caribbean, as we mentioned earlier, was a significant indication of China's interest in the Caribbean. Uh, being as small as we are, I think sometimes we tend to underestimate our geopolitical importance. I think that based on our numbers, based on the potential we have in the international fora, such as the United Nations and in the Organization of American States, we can carry significant political weight in those forums, especially when we vote together as a single bloc. And um, countries like China are aware of that. Um, that awareness, I think, can be leveraged to our benefit if we develop common strategies and common policies going forward. And I say that because a significant amount of China's offering to the Caribbean uh, 
while there are some bilateral proposals, a significant amount of it has been in the regional context. But if you were to examine carefully, there's very little that we have done regionally with China. And I think that that is an area for exploration and for moving forward on. For example, we have challenges in regional transportation. We've had difficulty in organizing the movement of products in the region and people. Uh, we talk about food security and moving produce from Guyana and Suriname to various parts of the region, etc. I mean, China as a, as a huge country has developed a lot of capacity in the area of shipping. But we've got to approach it from a regional perspective. In the area of technology, in the area of communication, we did something that is very useful and I think we need to do more of it. We now have a number of students studying at the Suzhou Institute of Technology, studying um, information technology and software engineering. That's the kind of regional initiative that we need to foster. Now, this was brokered through the University of the West Indies. But I think regional governments have to get together also and identify regional needs in climate change, in natural medicine, in transportation, in tourism. There's no reason why we should not have a single Caribbean uh, destination focus in talking to China. Because if someone is going to leave Beijing and come to the Caribbean, they probably don't want to visit just one country. They would like to visit a series of countries. If I leave that far to come to the Caribbean, I want to visit multi-country destinations. I want to go to Jamaica. I want to go to Barbados. I would like to see Trinidad, etc. But the Caribbean does not market itself at least not in China, as a multi-country destination. That requires some thinking in terms of visa requirements, in terms of what it takes to move from one jurisdiction to the next, in terms of the use of currency, in terms of the, the passport requirements, etc. And these are things that need to be put in place if we're going to have a regional focus when we're talking to the Chinese. These are important initiatives that I think could redound to the benefit of our countries. China has just launched the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative is a huge economic initiative with trillions of dollars designed to promote infrastructure around the world. I don't think the Caribbean has put together a regional strategy for taking advantage of the China Belt and Road Initiative. Efforts like that need to be taken into consideration. So our foreign policy, in my view, again, needs to take on an economic development focus rather than a purely political focus and begin to identify opportunities for investment and for growth of Caribbean economies linked to these large countries such as China. I think we're losing a great opportunity by keeping the political diplomatic focus in our foreign policy with respect to countries like China. Not that that is not important. It is important. But we need to marry that with a strategy for economic development and economic cooperation. 
thank you, Dr. Brathwaite. I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you very much. She balling like sobers and I couldn't get the ball play. She start with in and out swingers that puzzle me. Every time that I make a stroke, I miss sing she. She ball it slow, I run my toe to blister she. But when I play for our break, it was Google She tell me, hit it, oh, you're missing so. Hit it, you're used to brag before. Hit it.